This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Dame Farah Palmer is a sports star, an academic, someone who operates at the highest levels of governance, but still sometimes suffers from self-doubt, she told MBR's Dita Deboni. She spoke to Dame Farah recently and asked her when and why she joined the Global Women Network of High Achievers, despite her doubts. When did you, can I ask, when did you join Global Women and why did you join it? Good question. You don't have to be exact. Just I, don't, I think it might have been around 2018 or something like that that I joined, and I was a bit hesitant uh, when I got invited to to put my name forward. Um, it was great to see that there were Māori women in that space, like Agnes, who were encouraging, and I did think, gosh, I'm not at that level, and I still do. I still honestly get a bit of that imposter syndrome like the other night I'm sitting there going what am I doing here these amazing women but then I kind of tell myself oh, shut up and get over yourself and um, just enjoy the moment and and share what you what knowledge you have so I think for me it was just about trying to get me to take that step up and to see myself as yeah I, I deserve to be in this space and that is honestly, it's, it's a real struggle. My husband tells me I do it all the time, but I really, really struggle to put myself forward for these things. So I do require a bit of encouragement to do that. And um, but I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it immensely. I've enjoyed the events that have been held, and it was really great to be a part of the corridor the other night. I mean, it's to to me, all women. It seems to me suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome. But if someone who's a dame, a doctor a celebrated sports person, an academic, you know, can can feel that way. What hope is there for the rest of us? <laughs> I think it, it all depends on your upbringing too, you know, and I, I think I had a mum who told me never to put myself, never to think that I'm better than anyone else. And so it's just about me unpacking my upbringing and, and just acknowledging that I'm doing it my why is to is to help others. It always has been to give other people the opportunity to experience success and and high achievement, and that's what really makes my heart sing. So I kind of put all that self doubt and, and that imposter syndrome to the side, and just you know, say get over yourself and get in there and give it a go. I mean, I think a common New Zealand upbringing is don't don't get too big for your boots, kind of thing. Yeah. But- as women, are we too modest? Are we too slow in coming forward because of that sort of cultural upbringing that we have? Yes, yes, we are. Um, and sometimes I think, gosh, I may be too much kind of like quite direct now because I've been on the New Zealand rugby board for a while and and you've got to find the moment to really assert yourself in, around the board table and not just sit and wait to be asked, like, you know, even where you sit around the board table and, and how you how you start a conversation around a topic that you really want to contribute to. So, and the type of questions you use and the language you use. So over the years, I've learned how to be more direct yeah. and feel comfortable doing that because it, when it has the outcome that you were hoping for, then it makes you, reinforces this is working, just keep going in that direction. And not to feel like I'm encroaching on someone else's space or time. 
because I think, no, these, they've talked long enough. It's, you know, it's my turn. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're there to do, I, I guess. So yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, now, you were a senior lecturer and a researcher for many years before becoming a professor, and you've led many initiatives by the looks of it. Can I ask you, when you considered yourself to be going into academia as a career, because that's what you've done as well as your sporting career? Um, I think because I'm naturally an introvert and I like to kind of like do my research, that that is probably my comfort zone, being an academic and being able to read up on things and, and do some research to, to prove it or to analyse it or to test it. Um, I'm a sociologist as well, so people and how we interact with each other really fascinates me. So I think being an academic just comes naturally to me. It's stepping out of that academic zone and applying a lot of the theory that I've been studying and seeing how it actually works in real life. That's probably been this, this huge step for me. It's, but it's also been a win-win because I get to kind of like do the deep dive and look into things in great detail and then I get to apply it and test it and see if it works and go back to my research and kind of like they both inform each other. So it's been a really great opportunity. I don't think I've ever been completely an academic to the point where getting to professor was a, was a long time coming for me, whereas I know other other of my other colleagues are just driven about publishing and getting an A-star journals, and that's how they've gone to the professor, whereas I've kind of gone a slightly different route mm. in terms of doing more collaborative work, um, doing work with my PhD students, realising that I've got this opportunity where I've got the sport and the leadership and the Māori lens, and that's the area that I've found is my sweet spot. Wow. So that's that's where I've gone. And now you are head of the Māori Student Journey, I understand. I hope I've got that right. Yes. Um, yeah. That seems to me like one of the most important jobs, actually, because you're ensuring people start and finish the journey. Yes. How yeah, do you do that? Māori student success. So what success looks like might, might be different for the Tertiary Education Commission, for Massey University, for Māori and their whānau. So it's about how do I, in my role as the Executive Director of Māori Student Success, ensure that I provide a, an experience that ticks the boxes for those akonga Māori, those Māori students in their whānau, but also uh, caters to what is considered more the quantifiable success, which is completing their courses and completing their degrees. So at the moment, we're probably quite new in it. So I'm using my probably rugby experiences of creating a team because what happens is everyone kind of, when resources get limited, they kind of go into their silos and hunker down and, well, we're, this is what we're doing over here and I don't know what you're doing over there. So I've just been trying to create bridges, trying to get more collaboration and communication going between the different parts trying to be optimistic and positive in a, in a tertiary space that is probably going through some challenges at the moment and mm -hmm. really highlighting the successes that we have. So celebrating Māori graduation, celebrating when a student does well. Um, we've got funding to give out awards, for instance. So we give awards to not only those students that are excelling and getting A's, but those that are possibly 
carrying on, you know, showing resilience mm. and showing that they're ticking them off and they're doing it and we want to celebrate them as well. Um, I mean, is it fair to say when, when there's recessionary factors playing into the economy that oftentimes people from, you know, lower socioeconomic groups tend to leave tertiary study because they can't afford to stay in it. Yeah. Are there ways to to reach those people and keep them in? Because they, they're very they're a precious resource, right? To to bring definitely. Them yeah. There there are a lot of scholarships out there. The award system at the moment we're looking at tripartite arrangements between Iwi, the Māori Education Trust, and Massey to try and entice our Māori students to stick with us and keep going. Um, these little incentives that we can give them when they reach those milestones as they're going along. Sometimes it is just acknowledgement that just keeps them going. Uh, sometimes it's a sense of belonging. So how do we create a lot of our Māori students at Massey study by distance? Right. So how do we make them feel connected when they're not coming onto campus? So we've got Zoom drop-in sessions. We've got reach out where we kind of like try to kind of go and meet them wherever they predominantly are. So we're trying everything to make them feel that they're part of a whānau and that we want to support them. But, yeah, there's a lot of challenges for people, especially around the weather and, and the yeah. everything, the cyclone, and, and those are predominantly hitting Māori communities too. So we're, we're seeing a lot of anxiety and that coming through in a lot of our students. On the current trend, rental housing will be concentrated in the hands of cashed-up landlords or social housing providers. Maria Slade writes in this week's Shushang. Well, Maria, tell us what's causing this trend. Well, the number one concern for landlords at the moment, and this is showing up in the surveys, is the non-deductibility of mortgage interest, which the government brought in in October 21. Uh, so that was for any property bought after that date, but it's been phased in over four years for existing rental properties. And it basically means that people can't claim the interest costs of their mortgages as a tax deduction. And that's having a huge impact on the finances of the way people structure their rental properties. And it's, it's even more of a concern than rising interest rates that the surveys are showing. So why are landlords so concerned about it? Well, it just makes it uneconomic in many cases. Uh, a lot of landlords are just mums and dads that, you know, they've borrowed 60% to invest in a rental property as part of their retirement plan. And if you look at the numbers now, say you've got a million dollar property, uh, you've got a $600,000 mortgage at 6%, that's 36 grand in interest a year. You're probably only getting about that in rent. Then you've got all your other costs on top, your, your rates, insurance, whatever it is. So you're probably about 10 grand in the hole just on the costs of running the thing. And yet as far as the IRD is concerned, you've earned $36,000 and so you have to pay tax on that. So you're effectively paying tax for the privilege of negative cash flow. So property investors are just up in arms about it. So what was the thinking behind it? Why did they introduce it? Well, the idea is to try and curb the investor activity in the market. Uh, well, you know, m one of many reasons. And that has kind of worked. Um, the sentiment is now flowing through to the figures. We've seen from the latest CoreLogic numbers that um, multiple owners with debt, as they call them, you know, landlords basically, uh, represent about 21% of the property market at the moment. They were about 28% two years ago. But conversely, the ones with without debt, the cashed up ones, 
ones, they're now representing about 15% of the market, so they've gone up. So it's playing into their hands. If you've got cash available and you don't have to rely on debt, great, go out buy yourself a rental property. But the old model of um, ratcheting up the debt and then investing just doesn't work. The, the advisors are saying just don't do it now. It just doesn't work. So while that's deterring people doing it, it's called out a number of people who, who were doing it, myself included. Um, so what's the what's the outcome for those people? What can they do? Well, at the moment, it's not showing that people are actually selling up their existing holdings. They've definitely dialed right back their activity. They're not increasing their portfolios, but they're not selling yet, and that's for a number of reasons. One is the bright line test. Some will still be captured by that, and they'd rather burn cash for a couple of years than give away that capital gain to the government. Um, others are able to restructure maybe they've got some commercial property and they can load up the dent against that because that's still deductible. Some are doing big renovations and um, you know getting the most out of their properties. Others are putting them on Airbnb because you know it's much more lucrative. Uh, and also the other thing is this policy hasn't been fully implemented yet. It's still got another year or so to run. And so the impacts are starting to really be felt. Uh, so we may see investors starting to sell up uh, quite significantly in the next couple of years. We do have an election looming. Uh, what would happen if National did get back in or someone else like that? Well, National's policy, of course, is to remove the non-deductibility rule. Uh, that would have a big impact. But, of course, that's far from certain. Uh, we don't know whether that would happen. On the current trajectory, if things go you know, the way they are at the moment, all the advisors are saying that what will end up happening is the market will get concentrated in the hands of the mega landlords, the professional landlords who have a lot of capital, and the social housing providers, and there won't be a lot in between. The mums and dads will get out because it's just not worth their while. And so that could very well lead to lower amounts of rental stock, fewer properties available for rent. And if that happens, that means higher rents. So while the policy has worked in some regard in terms of it has subdued the market and it's probably helping first home buyers, they're doing quite okay. They're about 25% of the market at the moment, which is about as high as it's ever been. Um, it could really hit the people right at the bottom of the heap, the ones that will never own their own home. They may not be able to get rental properties and if they can, they may have to pay much more for them. So this is what happens, in my view, if you put in place a distortionary policy like that, which is treating investors who are effectively doing the same job differently. What do you think should happen? I would be interested to see if they removed it, what would happen to the market. I, I do believe it is distortionary. The other argument, of course, is that other types of businesses are able to claim their interest costs. If you go down the road and buy a vape shop, you can uh, you can claim your interest on whatever debt you've taken out to do that, but you couldn't if you bought another rental property. So, yeah, it's distortionary and it's, um, in the long run, probably not going to serve us. All right, well, thanks very much, Maria Slade. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. New Zealand's solar farmer developer Lightyear Solar recently closed a seed funding round that will help accelerate the pace of its pipeline of solar farm developments. Joining me now are the two co-founders, Matt Shanks and Sean Tobin. So welcome to both of you. So how hard did you find it uh, raising this um, current seed round? Uh, I guess this round, we you'd call it a friends and family round, really. Um, it's a sort of seed round. Um, it did take us four months to get our first investor on board, kind of, you know, a key investor, which is um, quite typical with a, you know, funding round that your, your key investor takes a bit longer. And then our second investor, I think, took four weeks. 
Yeah. Was, I think it was the the accountant that did the uh, check by the pre the first investor. So it's always a good sign when the accountant says afterwards. Actually, now that I've looked through your company, I'm happy to invest as well. So how much did you actually raise, and was it the amount you were seeking? It's probably we were originally seeking just a small amount, around three fifty to five hundred, and we ended up raising a million because it was coming quite well, and we thought we've got a lot of work to do. So. We would take that on and the help that it uh, has come with it because uh, the accountant came on and now he's one of our directors. And then we've got another one of the seed investors as an advisor because he's quite good at growing businesses. So it went quite well. So how do you two know each other and what made you decide to set up a business together? Hmm. Um, well, we, we met each other at, at school and um, have, have been friends uh, since high school. And um, yeah, we'd walk together, I think, on the way to school. It was handy that Matt just happened to live up the road. So he'd yeah. sort of collect me along the way and a b- bunch of other old grammar boys. So it was certainly fun. Yeah, and then um, probably about four or five years ago, we we came up with this... Um, I mean, we, we saw that no one was building solar in New Zealand. And um, you could see the, the forecast from Transpower and MB and others saying that um, this is the amount of new renewable generation we need in New Zealand every year for for 30 years really to get to this 2050 target and um, no one was seemed to be doing anything doing any solar and, and um, my background's as a power engineer uh, so I thought well look I understand the economics of these projects let's see if uh, we can put a business case together and um, and the, the fundamental numbers seem to stack up for us, so we so we pushed on with a with a pilot project, which was our um, four and a half megawatt Nomai project in um, near Dargaville. So um, yeah, so at that point we sort of um, you know we we sort of went around a few f- few friends or to see who'd be interested in, in uh, putting the venture together, and um, yeah, and then and Sean has. Um, yeah, I was doing a lot of construction stuff at the time and it was pretty sad with having to deal with Auckland City Council. So, so Matt was like, oh, come up and we can uh, try it. And so we went up to Dargaville and worked with their council, which was great fun. Uh, it's really since, nice. since you've started out, though, a lot more people have jumped into the space, haven't they? There is oh, quite a bit oh, going on in the solar space now. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I think we've timed it timed it quite well. It's, it's interesting, we spent the first um, probably 18 months Everyone we talked to said it's not going to work, or the timing's right, wrong, or um, yeah, we, we had to literally go by our own farm, and then we had to literally, because no one wanted to fund it, put our money in, talk very nicely to our partners, and say, hey, do you mind if we start chucking all this in as we get the consent, we do this all. I know we said it was going to be a business with other people, but no one wants to get on board yet. And then 18 months, two years later, suddenly everybody we tried to shop around were all like, how many projects do you have at the moment? And we're like, oh, we've still only got one. Well, maybe we had one and a half at that stage. We very quickly ramped it up, but we're probably in the unique situation where COVID probably helped us because we got to go quite far ahead. And now, yeah, we've got quite a few, probably five or six friends of developers and mostly everyone's getting along quite well at the moment. The market will fall eventually and we won't be as friendly as we are, but it's really good at the moment. So what is your business model? How does it work? So, so we're, uh, we fill the position of a developer, so we take a greenfield site, uh, we, we identify the sites and take them through to, uh, the projects through to shovel ready or RTB status, ready to build, at which point um, we have a couple of options. One of them is to is to transact on the, on the project development at that stage. Um, kind of like buying a house off the plans um, the second one is we add it to our build stack if, if the metrics are right and, and that there we, we build and finance the projects ourselves 
Um, and for us at the moment, those projects are around the sort of five to 10 megawatt range. Um, and then um, the third thing we do is, um, well, the other option for us is then co-development with, with I guess, bigger partners who, who come in and finance the construction of, of the larger projects. So, so the the um, what we've set up is a, I guess, quite a quite an efficient production line of taking greenfield sites through to, through to that shovel-ready stage. And, and I mean, we deal with I think two two inquiries a week, two two sites a week. We run through the, run through the cutter, and then and then um, at the top of the pipeline, and, and then the ones that are, that look good, we you know put into the machine and and work them work them through the. The development pipeline there. So. What's been the most stressful thing for you both? Um, and I assume this is your first company. Um, um, no, we because we uh, did meet <laughs> so early on in life. I was just saying to Matt on the way in here, we uh, did a trip around Africa when we were in our late teens, early twenties. And then when, I think I read Richard Branson's book at the time and got all gung ho. And then we came <laughs> back and then. We, we're in the flats that we lived in. There were painting companies set up, uh, no worries events management, no worries events catering, music companies. So we, there were a lot of companies that were set up. This is probably the first real serious company, or oh, I wouldn't say the others are all the serious, serious as well. Yeah, and they all did quite well. This is the first time either of us have worked to getting a board ahead of us and making sure that we've got rules on board. I guess. Yeah, certainly the first time we've had a um, had a board, and I guess um, I guess a larger pool of shareholders. Um, we're responsible to. Uh, well, for me, Sean's done that before. But um, um, in terms of sort of the really stressful things, um, I don't know. We're, we're pretty aligned on. I, I mean, at, at the start, it was um, I had to sit down with my wife and say, "Here's the here's the company budget because we're financing it off our mortgages," you know. And and then the checks would come in and things were over budget and so, you know, explaining that, um, but but without having, um, you know, pre-revenue was a quite a stressful time, I think, um, when we had an idea that we thought was good and we believed in, and taking that through to, uh, I mean, you know, now, now we've we've got a tested business model that um, that we've, you know, is, is we're reaping rewards from, I guess. So, so the things now are around, um, I guess, growing at a sustainable rate and managing cash flow is the. Yeah, we had quite a, a problem at the start managing cash flow because. We became quite good experts in the electrical code quite quickly, and then we very quickly found out that not necessarily the electrical companies were, because no one had applied to build solar farms before, and we'd put together our timeline going, well, we know this is supposed to take two months, and this is supposed to take six months, so we'd go to them and say, can you kindly do this? And then they'd be like, we don't have an office to deal with that, (laughs) so we'll have to go away and work out what you're actually talking about, and we'll come back. And so we had, I think we had to have one contract signed, and then on the day, or the two days before the company was supposed to sign it, and we had a big check waiting on that, they realised that no one in the company had the delegated authority to sign it. And so now it had to to roll off to a board meeting, because the first time they'd ever signed a contract of that nature. And we had people on the other hand, on the back end, saying, you told us you'd have that piece of paper today, and we were like, we thought we would. Does um, running your own business take up more time than you anticipated? Hmm. Just different time. I uh, got up at 4.30 this morning, <laughs> squeezed in my run and then sat on the laptop and then got in the car, drove out to something. You know, it's always hard. We've both got young families. So, and one of the reasons, I, th- I think one of the reasons we work with each other nowadays is that when you stay in the corporate world, it's very hard to get home to see the kids. But now it's quite easy to get home to see the kids as long as you know that once the kids go to bed, you can pick up the laptop again and then <laughs> sit away and type away. 
So tell us a bit about your musical background. Oh, you've been uh, you've been digging deep in the archives there, Fiona. Um, yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've worked for probably ten years as a as a musician, as a, as a bass player in New Zealand, and um, uh, yeah, I guess I'm quite proud of of what uh, what I've done in that time with um, recordings and, and whatnot, and yeah, still perform these days, but but not as a, um, not as my primary uh, career. Um, but I think yeah that that um, something that's interesting about the solar is um, you know I did a huge amount of travelling up and down New Zealand um, in those years and, and Sean was just saying before that he actually joined us as a roadie on one of those trips. Um, but now that w- a lot of the work we do is identifying solar sites, I can sort of look at a map and go oh yeah I know that you know I know that spot. Um, I've driven past it. I know exactly how to get there. And, and it's quite good when you're talking with landowners as well because you you know if you can sort of show that demonstrate that you you know their neighbourhood and their region a little bit, uh, which has been an interesting crossover. So are the more people jumping into this territory good for your business, or is it is it competition, or is it is it um, growing the pie as it were? I mean, look, the the forecasts at the moment are what four to five hundred megawatts of new generation every year. So so if you look at it from a you know New Zealand New Zealand Inc kind of point of view, we we need to be building this stuff out, um, and we're not. I mean. We're not achieving it yet in New Zealand, uh, so I mean, we, you know, we welcome anyone coming in to 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 add to that because it's helpful for the country. Um, the electricity prices is, is high at the moment, and that's a big factor for a lot of you know manufacturing businesses and, and heavy electricity users. The the cost of their electricity, so so we want to bring that down. Um, so yeah, I mean, the more people that come in. That, that, that's good. Um, it's I, made working with the international players much easier for us as well. Because four years ago, when we started the coming, maybe five years ago, I picked up the phone and I was on the phone to China trying to say, "Can I get a price for this panel?" And they're like, "Where are you? Australia? No, New Zealand." <laughs> and they'd be like, "We don't do there. <laughs> we don't do there." But now people are, they see it as a marketplace. So, and as we're working together, we actually talk quite friendly with most of the developers at the moment, trying to make sure we're buying similar gear and we can support each other through the process. And when we talk to Australia, we often find that if you don't support each other and you try to steal from bits or try to compete, you can actually race to the bottom and end up with solar farms that can't be turned on. So at the moment, it's great. We'll see where it is in five to ten years, but at the moment we really enjoy the camaraderie with the other developers. Okay, well thanks very much for your time, Matt and Sean. Dr. William Ralston and his brother John founded biotech and vaccine manufacturing company South Pacific Sierra 35 years ago, and they remain the joint shareholders. The company is a biotech industry pioneer, which grew out of a diversification of the Ralston family's farming business on Blue Cliff Station near Timaru. It produces top-quality donor animal blood, serum and protein products for use in therapeutic cell culture, microbiology and immunology applications worldwide. William Ralston joins me now. Welcome, William. Hello, Fiona. So you and your brother co-founded South Pacific Sierra in 1988. Where did the idea for it come from? Well, uh, I did medicine and, and my brother John did law and uh, we were looking for a, uh, a business and uh, I'd always wanted to do either medicine or farming and we had a farming asset um, which you know, was being run as a traditional um, farming operation but not being run by um, 
specifically by any family member. So this was an opportunity to combine uh, a farming asset with an um, intellectual grunt, if you like, to, um, to start a, a relatively new industry in, in New Zealand. Um, the idea really came when I was doing uh, locums, medical locums in the United Kingdom. And uh, I came across this industry and I just thought it was a good um, combination of our uh, various capabilities and assets. Uh, so we brought the idea back, back to New Zealand. At the same time, uh, the UK was going through their crisis with mad cow disease. And so pharmaceutical companies were looking for sources of material of animal derived material that weren't coming from the UK and they particularly wanted it to get it from New Zealand. So there was a nice opportunity and, and uh, you know, confluence of, of situation and, and, um, and uh, a resource to, um, for us to set up a business. How, how big is the company growing? I know it's a privately held company, but can you give us an idea of the size? Well, I can tell you we're, we uh, employ around about 100 employees um, across our um, business, so um, that should give you an idea of the size. When it comes to running the business as entrepreneurs, um, you know, how hard has it been or how easy working with your with your brother? Oh, <laughs> we've, uh, we're twin brothers, so um, we've worked together um, since we were born, um, so that hasn't been very hard at all. And how do you decide who, who divvies up, um, who does what? Well, uh, you know, I did medicine, which was much more of a scientific um, uh, side of it, and John did law, which was far more in, in, in accounting, so it was, um, you know, far more the business side of things. So it was pretty easy. I do the production, and he does the administration. Um, so, so we divide it up that way. And you both um, had outside interests. Obviously, your former Federated Farmers president and, and John has had, you know, a number of external directorships. Um, is is that part of the joy of owning your own business, that you can go off and do other interests as well? Well, it's, it's part of the joy, but it's also part of the necessity. I think, um, you know, we, you know, in any business, relationships are really important and networks are really important. And, um, you know, not only have I been involved in the, in the farming industry, but I was also um, the founding chairman of the biotechnology industry organisation, and you know that that those connections um, have been incredibly useful over the years. Um, you know we understand much more about the the industry because, in fact, when we started, we didn't even know this industry existed, um, and so you know we've built up connections and, and our reputation over the last uh, thirty years, and that's really been um, very helpful. So, you know, being involved in, in Federated Farmers was just an extension of that. It was about, um, uh, you know, helping the, the farming industry uh, and, and the issues that are, that are affecting the farming industry, but also building up those networks in the farming industry, really understanding how it ticked. Um, it's nothing like leading an industry to really understand um, how it works. You've managed to grow the business without external funding. Was that deliberate? Uh, yes, I think it was. Um, we, you know, we were fortunate that we had a farming asset we could um, uh, lean back on. Uh, I think if we hadn't had that, then um, we would have had to go out and get external funding uh, or, or we just may not have um, made it through the desert of um, you know, company growth because... You know, pharmaceutical companies in particular don't like to do business with a company who has just started. 
Uh, they want to know that you've been in business for at least 10 years before they really even want to um, start buying product, particularly a strategic product like uh, donor bovine serum, uh, because it costs them millions of dollars to change. And um, if you're a fly-by-nighter, uh, then they're going to be sadly let down. Uh, so, so, you know, we've been able to um, uh, get through that period um, and, and, and build our reputation while not actually having a lot of revenue to, to start with. Uh, you know, in fact, I still carried on doing medical locums until 2002. Um, so I was still working as a doctor for probably 15 years while well, Sub-Pacific Sierra was, um, you know, gaining momentum. So you're part of this vaccine alliance, Aotearoa, which is aimed at producing a local COVID-19 vaccine. Where, where are things at with that? So we're now working towards um, clinical trials. Uh, the, the testing has been done in, in animals and shown to be um, you know, highly effective, um, which has been very promising. Um, you know, usually with a drug, you try and knock it off as soon as you possibly can, because the more you spend, um, you know, you're better to knock it off early than to knock it off late. Uh, but this has actually been uh, shown to be very promising. Uh, and so yeah, now we're building up to um, doing a, a first in human trial, uh, which is no mean feat. Um, and, and, and the other um, challenge, I guess, or, or um, achievement will be actually getting that trial underway so that we can show that we've got the whole mechanism from um, discovery to uh, first in human trials uh, in New Zealand. And we can do that all as a homegrown product. And I think that's going to be really, um, you know, the key outcome from this project is, is to really show that we can build a, a, a vaccine homegrown um, and, and we have the capabilities to do that. And once we've done it once, then uh, actually the timeframes will be um, incredibly, well, will be a lot shorter than, than they are now. And adding RNA uh, technology into the mix, um, which is also running in parallel, um, then that will reduce the, the time frames even even faster. Is so there a date the set, uh, William, for the for the uh, uh, clinical trials? So that's looking like um, late this year or early next year, um, and uh, but we're just working through um, those uh, particular areas at the moment. So, if it's all successful, would that be a big boost for South Pacific Sierra if it was a manufacturer of that uh, vaccine? Yeah, we haven't set ourselves up to be the manufacturer of this vaccine um, uh, right now. That will depend entirely on uh, you know how much needs to be produced. We've got the capability to produce that sort of uh, quantities of vaccine needed for New Zealand and the Pacific, but if it was to be wider, then uh, you probably need a, a bigger um, manufacturing facility, and you probably would go um, overseas to do that. Uh, because there are there is capability overseas where you could do that. Um, I mean, there is the opportunity to to build something here um, if if we really needed to. Uh, but in terms of turnkey right at the moment, um, we're looking at you know runs that would run that would um, service New Zealand and, and the Pacific, not um, not worldwide. And just finally, um, William, uh, what's what's yours and John's uh, succession plan for the company? 
Well, we have a we have another generation um, coming up behind us. Um, they're off doing their own thing at the moment, um, and we'll see what they uh, decide to do is in terms of um, what our succession plan may be. Uh, you know, we've got good depth and capability within this company, um, even if uh, none of the next generation actually wants to take it over. Um, but you know, we're very um, you know, we're very close to uh, to our customers. We're seen as um, uh, very strategic to them. Um, one big pharma company um, puts us in the top um, 10 of their most uh, important strategic um, suppliers. Um, as a contract manufacturer, another um, uh, big pharma uh, puts us in the top five of their, of their contract manufacturers. Um, so, you know, in terms of, in terms of where, the, where the future goes, you know, we have to um, have a future that nurtures those um, those relationships because it it does come down to strategic relationships with our customers. Um, you know, that for us it has been key. You know to provide high quality product and a and a really um, robust strategic relationship. We're not just you know flogging products off, um, you know kicking them out the door and, and not worrying about them. We actually care about what happens to our products. We care about um, treating, you know, our, our products eventually treating patients um, uh, out in the wide world. And um, I think that's, that sets us apart from a lot of other supply companies and contract manufacturers um, who are just interested in the business. You know, we take a multi-generational approach um, to this as we have with our farming operator business, which is, you know, we've been farming in South Canterbury since, uh, since uh, 1853. Um, so, you know, we think intergenerationally, uh, we think long term, and I think uh, customers really appreciate that. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time, William Rolston. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. A total of $726 million was invested in New Zealand tech companies in 2022, according to the latest Technology Investment Report. The report has been produced by the Technology Investment Network with help from a number of other players in the ecosystem, including New Zealand Growth Capital Partners and Angel Investors. Joining me now is TIN founder Greg Shanahan. Welcome, Greg. Hi, Fiona. Thanks for having me. So um, 2021 was a bit of a wild ride for, for tech investment, but things have changed globally in 2022. But how was it in New Zealand? So it was a kind of a, a mixed bag. The first two quarters were well up, and then the latter two quarters were sort of well significantly down. So the aggregate was around um, an 8% growth at that peak of $726 million. So on average, New Zealand did pretty well. What's driving that then, and why are we doing better perhaps than, than some other places? I think one of the big things that comes through in this report is the growth of international investment. Um, typically people have said, oh, if we get international investment as soon as there are tremors, that'll pull up sticks. But we see a, a growing spread. Um, so uh, foreign investors accounted for 55% of that total, so a, a significant growth, close to 40% increase. Do you think that shows a maturing of the sector because we've had successes like Zero that, that are globally significant now that, that people are looking to New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from the tin perspective in the past few years, we've seen an increasing number of companies with valuations in billions rather than millions. So it's kind of become 
an Austin Powers moment for the um, economy and the tech sector. So I guess the question that everyone raises, have we got enough capital here that we need? There's a bit of hesitancy around capital right now, and um, particularly in the early stage uh, companies, um, there's just general anxiety in the, the global economy worldwide. But good companies are still being funded, and one of the things that the report highlighted is particularly the growth in, in, in Series A round. So as an example, the average deal size uh, for uh, foreign investors was about $15 million which was sort of five times that of the average local deal, so, uh, deal funded by local investors. So we could always have more. So is it fair to say that perhaps it's easier to get later stage funding than, than early stage? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and so in a time of uncertainty, you're going to fly, you're going to, to, there's a flight of capital towards more mature companies with revenues and, and resources. So it's a little bit harder for the early stage uh, startups and early stage companies. So um, is debt fi- financing an option for them? Or how, how receptive are the banks? I think banks are changing. Um, the TIN report sponsored by uh, BNZ, so uh, they are one of the leaders in this field. They haven't published any figures on it, but apparently debt fi- financing for the tech businesses is growing strongly. And I guess one of the things around the tech sector was there's always been this thing of these loss-making companies that sadly went on for years and years. But increasingly, there's a drive for profit as soon as possible. And with recurring revenue, you can borrow against that. So that makes them more bankable. Really depends on the tech company, doesn't it? If you're talking about software as a service, yeah. that's you know quicker to market than something like um, you know clean tech or, or health tech, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's And that's one of the things we see that software solutions you know, are the um, most, uh, the highest in terms of um, investment. Yeah. Where are the growth areas, do you think, though, in terms of uh, attracting investment? Uh, you know, SAS is, has been and will be always dominant, but but what is coming through? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So um, health tech, um, uh, the um, deep tech technologies, companies like Soul Machines, Quantify, et cetera, companies with deep IP, and then um, in transport, so when I say transport, we're talking kind of outer space like Dawn and Zeno and those companies, a cluster are building around Rocket Lab. Okay, and um, one of the things in the report that struck me, you had a figure around female-led um, tech raising $3.4 million per deal, which sounds good until you consider it's around half of what, what their male-led uh, founders are able to raise. What's causing that yeah. gender imbalance? Well, I guess the, one of the first things is that I was... Um, the It's significantly high... So the percentage of uh, female-led companies being funded is significantly higher than, say, the gender profile of more, more mature companies. And so that funding is going to early-stage companies and so therefore the deal size is less... But as those companies um, mature and, and go through the system, become larger companies, I think that will change. I think the encouraging thing is that there are so many uh, female, you know, certainly it's not at equity uh, stage, but a large percentage of female-led companies, and that's growing. Um, but nonetheless, they're getting less money per deal than their male counterparts, even at the early stage. Yeah, well, I, I guess I don't think that's a, a gender-related thing, but more in sort of an average around what stage they're at. Okay. 
Um, what's the outlook like then? You, you mentioned um, the second half of the year was tougher. It, anecdotally, what have, what's sort of 2023 been like in terms of raising? Anecdotally, still, I think, fairly tough for um, early stage companies. Um, and certainly the total level of investment has dropped. Um, if you look at the public markets, you can see sort of the, the trend in market capitalization starting to head back towards where it was, not maybe in 2021, but certainly around the COVID time. So the whole market lifted around COVID, particularly in New Zealand terms with F&P Healthcare. So no, we we feel positive. Um, for, from the tin perspective, from the industry perspective, chaos and uncertainty brings forward change. Um, and so it increases the... Um, adoption of new technologies. So the opportunities are out there. So for investors in the sector, potentially you're, you're getting a bargain, so the a pressure on prices, but these companies have got more opportunity than ever before. So have valuations come back then? Yes. How much? It's hard to say, but significantly, yeah, depending on what stage you're at. Is that a good thing, though? I mean, did they get over uh, overvalued in the exuberance of 2021? Yeah, I think they possibly did. And, and companies with money, uh, obviously, and in some cases, over-invested with growth. Uh, sorry, with, with um, recruitment to support that growth. So we've seen tech companies shedding people. Uh, but, yeah, I think it'll, it'll rebalance. Just wanted to talk about the listing side of things. Um, you know, we haven't seen a lot of tech listings of late. Uh, what do you see on that horizon? I think that people are hesitating primarily because of the valuation. So as you see the, the market start to come back for tech companies, that'll be the time. In a similar way, we see um, that uh, trade sales of companies also dropping off in terms of acquisitions of, of tin companies for the same reason. People don't want to sell their house in the down market. Okay, but um, in terms of one of the things I noted from the report was that a lot of the listed companies have been raising more capital, though, follow-on capital. Yeah, I, I, I guess they're able to because because they're listed. So one of the one of the, the, the phenomenons of, of the NZX and the ASX is the ability of those companies who are listed to raise more, more capital to support their growth in anticipation of tougher times. And obviously, um, it's a good sign if they're, uh, you know, wanting the money to, to um, you know, advance the technologies if they're actually making progress. But, uh, yeah, without being too uh, um, optimistic, I, I think there's a significant window of opportunity here in New Zealand for our tech companies um, to make progress in this uncertain environment and therefore greater opportunities for um, uh, investors. They've just got to take their hands out of their pocket and deliver some dollars to these companies. What do you think is the biggest hurdle then for um, these tech companies? I guess two things. The, the most rec recent one is really uh, talent. Um, so you can have the most fantastic plan, but um, if you don't have the talent to execute it. So talent has been scarce. Um, there's been wage inflation because of that demand for talent. So operating costs are going up. So it's primarily been around people. Um, Obviously, right now, particularly for early stage companies, the dearth of funding um, is, is an issue. But uh, I guess for anyone that's going to uh, found a tech business, you're just uh, dealing with the circumstances um, as they unfold and not using them as an excuse not to perform. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Greg Shanahan. Thanks, Fiona. 
For a discussion of employment law matters in our toil and trouble slot this week, I'm joined by the Secretary of the CTU, Melissa Ansell-Bridges, who's dissected the budget in between her other commitments and joins me now. Melissa, how was budget 2023 from a worker perspective? Well, there's a lot of really exciting stuff in the budget. Um, Something that I'm particularly excited to see is that 20 hours of ECE being extended to children from two years and up from from the current three-year position. Uh, We know that the cost of childcare is really prohibitive for a lot of families. A lot of families, you know, particularly in this cost of living crisis, uh, are looking at the cost of childcare looking at what they can potentially earn in a week with both parents working and saying this doesn't add up and actually there's either no or there's minimal benefit for both parents to be in work Uh, and that means that one of the parents and it's usually the mother, uh, makes the decision to stay home and look after the child or children as opposed to returning to the workforce. And sometimes that's a genuine choice and that's great. And if that's what works for the family, then fantastic. But if that decision is being made for families for financial reasons, rather than it being what's right for the family, then that's really problematic. So extending those 20 free hours to children from two and up is going to make a huge difference in terms of women being able to um, make that decision to return to the workforce because there'll be fewer concerns around being able to access um, and afford that childcare. So that's that's a really positive thing. And it will have flow-in effects as well to things like our gender pay gap, for example, um, because people will be able to, you know, increase their hours at work. So, so really pleased to see that. Was that something that the CTU had um, lobbied for? Yeah, so actually reasonably recently as a part of the Future of Work um, Forum, which uh, which is run um, with a number of government ministers, uh, business representatives and unions, one of the conversations had been around the future of work for women. And there were a few topics in there. So one of them was around pay transparency, um, but there were also um, discussions around paid parental leave and access to ECE. And um, I spoke about the the issue that we have in New Zealand with the gap, the gap between your entitlement to six months of paid parental leave and then the fact that there's a two and a half year period before you're entitled to any other support for childcare, whether that's provision for a parent or for another service. But someone has to be looking after that child in that two and a half year period, right? Because they're between six months and three years. So someone's doing that work um, and currently no one's paying for that, um, which basically means that, you know, parents are copping that entire cost and it often means that um, women aren't able to fully engage in the workforce. And, you know, as the mother of a 19-month-old with a number of friends who are at a similar stage in life, you hear so many creative workarounds that people have, which is a combination of like grandparent support and a bit of part-time work here. And maybe you can squeeze in a few hours of childcare and so on. But people are really having to be quite creative about how you cover that childcare period. So having that um, that increased support, now it doesn't cover the full gap. There's still an 18-month period here where parents are going to have to find 
um, a solution, either through, you know, paying for that childcare expense entirely themselves or a parent staying home um, from work. But it is going to really help. And so we're pleased to see that with that view of what the future of work looks like for women, the government has taken this step, which is um, going to be a massive support for, for a lot of families, for those children who um, are going to be able to access uh, ECE and, and particularly for women as well. Can I ask you, Melissa, if thought has been put to how this works in the, in you know in actuality? I mean, for example, we know that there isn't really enough ECE places for all the children that want them. The, there's inequitable access to ECE. Um, the teachers are, are fighting for pay parity, for example, or the you know the instructors, whatever you call them. And um, you know a lot of the sector is owned by private interests, and the quality is uneven. Has there been thought put to the rest of the equation? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And actually, um, it was it was one particularly around the um, the access to ECE, which I, I put to the Minister today, um, Minister Tanetti in, in the lockup, because actually being able to um, get a place in an ECE centre is a real struggle for a lot of families as well. Uh, and she did say that um, that they are aware of those issues and and working through them. I mean, from a from a union perspective, we're really keen to see um, pay parity in ECE. Um, we know, you know, NZDI is as the union for um, early childhood education. Teachers have um, started the process to initiate a fair pay agreement with a view to, um, you know, increasing wages and and ensuring better um, conditions to, you know, hopefully um, increase the the attractiveness of work in ECE in New Zealand. Um, and and there's current pay equity um, claims happening in that space as well. So we're hopeful that a combination of those measures will mean that um, there are more teachers wanting to work uh, in that industry, uh, and that um, and that there are the centres uh, available for and the places and centres available for those families who are wanting to access ECE. And the other thing. Um, the other thing to say, I suppose, around ECE is that it's not it's not childcare, right? It's so much more than that. It is actually a really important first step in education for children as well. So it's incredibly important that um, that those teachers, are, you know, are, are fully trained in those centres and actually that 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 skill, that qualification which they have in that work and that really important role that they play um, in children's learning uh, and development is recognised in their pay and conditions as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so what else did you see in the budget that you like the look of? Yeah, there were a couple of things. One of them was um, KiwiSaver payments being made on paid parental leave. We know that um, women on average have about 20% less than men do when it comes to retirement savings, which is a massive gap, especially when you then consider that often, you know, women's life expectancy is, is longer than men's. There's a number of reasons for that. There's the years that women might take out of the workforce because of childcare responsibilities. There's the gender pay gap. Um, and that that period of being on parental leave, if you're not receiving KiwiSaver payments during that time, then that actually has quite a significant um, impact on those retirement savings 
over time. Uh, and so we're really pleased to see that the government will be investing and in ensuring that women aren't losing out um, because they're, they're taking time to to have children um, and and ensuring that they'll have KiwiSaver um, payments made on their paid parental leave. So that's, that's a great thing that we were really pleased to see. Um, and another was around that minimum wage exemption for workers with disabilities being removed. It's a discriminatory provision. It should never have existed. It's fantastic that the government will be um, ensuring, you know, providing support to make sure that all workers with disabilities are actually able to to work and receive at least the minimum wage. So really pleased to see those changes. Um, there's there's a lot more in the budget, but those those three, I suppose, that 20 hours of ECE and the KiwiSaver on paid parental leave and the removal of um, the, the discriminatory minimum wage exemption, I suppose are three examples of how the budget is working to improve equity and equality uh, in the world of work. And that's something which we're really pleased to see. In terms of the latter one, I mean, the government is paying subsidy to those employers, isn't it? So it's not like the employers are actually having to really change the way they pay. No, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I mean, ultimately, you'd like to think that all employers recognise that actually those workers with the disabilities are, you know, contributing a huge amount that, you know, they're, they're workers of equality, which doesn't justify paying less. Um, and, and that the, you know, the skill and the contribution which those workers can can make to their jobs is, is recognised. If in the meantime, this is the step, which means that those workers aren't missing out Fine. Fine. So be it. Um, and just finally, what was something you would have liked to have seen today with regard to workers that you did not see? Yeah, I mean, one other thing which I sort of had in the back of my mind um, going into this budget is around pay transparency. So the the government is um, undertaking work around pay transparency. There is a um, a, a working group, NACU, has been charged with, uh, that's the National Advisory Council on the Employment of Women, um, with, with developing policy in this space. Um, the, you know, the theme of the budget has been a sort of no frills bread and butter budget. Um, and for me, pay transparency is a bread and butter issue because it really goes to the heart of reducing uh, inequality for particularly women and and Māori and Pacific workers uh, as well. And so work is underway there, but really keen to see a strong political commitment from the government in the not too distant future around pay transparency. Maybe at the election time? I hope so, if not before. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, that's great. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. The dust has settled and the analysis can begin on Grant Robertson's sixth no-frills budget. Businesses say they've only been left with crusts and even crumbs out of the bread and butter budget. Joining us on this panel is First Retail's Chris Wilkinson, First Union's Edward Miller and Henry co-founder James Fuller. Well, first to you, James, is there anything substantial in the budget for businesses and especially sole traders? Yeah, I, th I think look, the, the budget was uh, exactly what it said it would be, which was which was no frills. And I think when when we look at it from the perspective of the sort of fifteen percent of the economy that are sole traders, we really, I suppose, weren't holding out much hope that there would be a lot in there for the sole trader market. Um, you know, this se sector isn't really properly recognised as its own entity in New Zealand. I think it's it's I suppose I would describe it as disappointing, but not surprising. 
And Chris Wilkinson? Yeah, good morning, team. I, I Look, I don't think there was anything that retailers expected that was going to come out of the bag this time. Um, you know, this is really around the, the overall focus on cost of living that's overwhelming consumers right now, so that anything can, that's a helping hand for them will be appreciated. But Chris, in terms of uh, what businesses may have been looking for in a high inflationary environment, should there have been more support? Look, I don't. I think the reality is there. There probably isn't anything else left in the coffers. Some of those, uh, the, the simple things that have come through, like for instance, the prescription charge. That's actually going to be quite beneficial to retailers, to to retail communities. So that will have actually a wider benefit uh, than than many people will imagine. How will that benefit? Well, what's actually happening uh, up until recently, of course, is that the large uh, retailers, the likes of Countdown and Chemist Warehouse and Discount Chemist, have been essentially cornering these markets. But those retailers are typically located in the in the urban, the metropolitan areas. Um, what's it's a real challenge for uh, consumers in the provinces and some of the smaller rural areas where they're finding it a real challenge in terms of being able to get prescriptions. We want to uh, see pharmacies back in the front line uh, in terms of healthcare. And the benefit of dropping these prescription charges will mean that people will be back amongst um, these retail communities. That'll be their first point of call and that's actually going to be very, very useful. Mm. In terms of you, Edward, the unemployment rate has tipped to increase. What does that mean from your perspective and the workers you represent? Well, um, the Treasury projection on unemployment is a little bit lower than what we've seen from the Reserve Bank, and there's differences in how they project them. Uh, one's quarterly and one's annual. It's great to see the projection of a lower unemployment rate. Um, they're looking, I think, at about 5.2% by the end of uh, 2025. It would be nice to see lower unemployment as a result of, of uh, Reserve Bank interventions. But we have not seen any announcements that really make things easier for people who are the most vulnerable sectors of society within this budget. There's a couple of things that help for maybe low-income workers and middle-class welfare. But um, in terms of boosts for benefits and basic cost of living, there's not a huge amount in there. Um, so the pe people that are made unemployed as a result of uh, the rising cost of capital and, and uh, difficulties in businesses and the ongoing economic environment will find that the next little while will struggle unless we see a couple of changes being announced in the lead up to the election and, and in the next year budget as well. And Chris, uh, in terms of other big announcements that you saw in the budget, what, what's key for the retail sector? Look, I think the, the free childcare is going to be an important one. Um, retail, hospitality are all struggling for people. Uh, and we know we've got a lot of skilled people out there who will significantly benefit from the, uh, the childcare provisions. In what way do you sort of have any numbers on how many people might be able to get back into the workforce as a result of this? No numbers, but anecdotally, we, we know that there are a lot of people and this uh, is often the barrier. That is the, the, the key thing that people are looking for and, and, and just having that extra capacity um, will make a big difference. The budget and economic forecast update showed that over the next couple of years, we can see 
the employment level rising at the same same time, or oh, sorry, the labour force participation level rising at the same time as seeing unemployment up. So it will unlock more of the labour force um, to be able to to take part in, in those parts of the economy, which I think is really crucial. And with that, Edward, there's a boost in migration recently, and that was certainly mentioned as the bu- in the budget as a as a boost to the economy. What's that going to do? Well, it's we experience a, a pretty high migration rate at the moment. I think it's sort of two percent of the population coming in within the past year, a hundred thousand people. That's that's big. Um, it makes sense that it's big because we've had a very low migration period for a long period of time. That will um, address sort of employment deficits in a lot of key industries, um, presumably in, in industries like health, education, public transport, where we're really excited to invite a whole lot of migrant workers into the country. But there are serious concerns around the infrastructure capacity to enable these people to be comfortably housed and to have access to the kind of public services that we expect people living in this country to have. We still have a serious housing deficit um, and there doesn't seem to be enough uh, construction taking place over the little while, over the next little while to ensure that people can have an adequate standard of living, um, all of those migrant workers coming into the country, as well as people here struggling. What about that $71 billion earmarked over five years for infrastructure? <clears throat> it's great to see. We, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, where it's going to go and all, all of that kind of a thing. But yes, we have a huge infrastructure deficit in this country. I think it's placed at somewhere around t- uh, $200 billion over the next 30 years. Uh, that will that $71 billion will start to take a crack at that. Um, but it, it, it isn't touching the sides yet. You know, there's, there's a lot of work to be done in this space. And Chris, um, CBD buildings and retail spaces will benefit from that funding. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell you what, we also are pleased to see the spending going into those regions affected by Gabriel because we know that that's been a, a real challenge for the retail sector there. Um, to have that confidence, to have that those workers in those areas uh, back in spending money will be a real benefit. Mm. Uh, Specifically, you're talking East Coast, you know, Gisborne areas. The here and now, how are retailers doing? Look, it's challenging. It's very, very challenging out there because, of course, we've got uh, people's focus really is on this cost of living. And so discretionary spending has really pulled back. Apparel, um, homewares, those categories which have been doing extremely well um, post-COVID, have pegged back uh, significantly, and um, we, we we really need to see some confidence back in, in consumers. Mm. Will businesses along that East Coast area have any confidence in the budget announced this month? Look, it's it's early signs. Of course, we we need to see those uh, those teams back into those areas. We need to see the work happening. Uh, at the moment, that's really still in clean up mode, uh, and there'll be some obviously planning before they get into some of that major rebuild work. But um, we know there's some strategic work about getting people back into those areas in terms of visitation, uh, you know, open for business kind of uh, messaging. So. Uh, I think this will be good in the long term, but certainly it's going to take a while to come through. Mm, And that was certainly mentioned in the budget that areas affected by the recent weather events will be struggling for a little bit longer. But overall, it's saying that the economy is ticking along quite well. 
It, it is, but some of the sectors, uh, as I say, have been hit majorly, and um, those sectors such as apparel, those categories, which are some of our largest occupiers by floor space, are really struggling. And um, and that will have some downstream impacts on um, the rest of the economy. And, and Chris, just to echo what you're saying there, from a when, when we look at the sole trader segment in particular, these are people who are really, uh, they've been struggling with the inflationary pressures that have been coming in, in terms of, uh, you know, cost of living from a personal perspective. And this is probably the last segment of the economy that is actually able to raise prices. You know, we look at uh, we look at retail and we can see that the effect of inflation on, on prices. But if you talk to the average midwife or personal trainer or, or, or courier driver, these are folks who, if they raise their prices too much, they will actually lose business. And so we, we don't want to be in a position where we're effectively putting in place economic policy that encourages a race to the bottom for the 15% of the economy that are sole traders. Very true. Absolutely. And Edward, the Reserve Bank reviews the official cash rate this week, likely to go up by 25 basis points. What's your pick? Well, look, it's it's hard to say. We've seen overnight a couple of the bank economists come out and say that they're expecting um, a pathway to 6% over the next couple of hikes. So that's somewhere between 0.25 or 0.5 um, at the next, um, on Wednesday next week. I, I'm not entirely sure this is warranted. The statements coming out from bank economists said that this was more inflationary than expected. But if you look at the expenses between this year here in last year, it's a $26 billion difference. It's actually a 2.1% decline in terms of uh, of expenses to GDP ratio. There's a good argument to say this is an austerity budget. The decline is much lower than the rate of inflation. Um, so the idea that, that this would be more inflationary than expected, I wonder exactly what the bank economists were expecting. And at the back of my mind, my sort of self-interest on meter starts going off because we know that uh, rates hikes are, uh, work out well for bank profits. How would the Reserve Bank be taking the budget and, and what it's reading and the fact that the economy is, is performing better than expected and its hopes of manufacturing a recession aren't likely to form? Well, I'm sure they'd be very happy with the, the latest CPI data that we got last week, or sorry, uh, last quarter. Um, which, while they were wildly wrong in their projections, they picked a 7.3% um, CPI and it ended up at 6.7%. That's the kind of wrong that you like to be, I guess. Um, mm. It looks like inflation is declining a lot faster than the Reserve Bank expected. Uh, so I would say that there's there's a good case here for, for hitting the pause button on OCR hikes. I don't know if my friends at, at uh, the Reserve Bank would agree with me. And James, the businesses you follow closely, what are they telling you about where inflation's at within their sectors? I, th I think we've seen, you know, some of the supply chain issues that we're seeing sort of a couple of years ago um, during during the COVID times, they've started to ease. So certainly in the trades, uh, availability of supply, price of supply has started to uh, started to level off, which is a fantastic result. But I th think we're still in a situation where um, we have a real... We've got some real challenges at the sort of lower income end of the sole trader spectrum where we have people who are um, who are enjoying the freedom that comes from being a sole trader, but are also conscious that they're, they're probably being paid less than the, a minimum living wage. And I, it's a really big thing for us to actually say, well, look, we have a we have a, a minimum living wage for uh, for salaried earners. Should we be having this for self-employed and sole traders? And this is you know, this was our 
our you know our pipe dream out of one of these budgets is that actually we start to recognize that we should not be having people in um, uh, in, in employment, whether that's in in sort of uh, contracting or, or full time employment. We should not have people who um, who are having to make sacrifices and and effectively earn under a, under a living wage. And I think that's the the big thing that we're kind of canvassing for is is recognizing that. There are good reasons why you would hire someone on a full-time basis. There are good reasons why you would hire someone on a contract basis. Some industries are, are required to be staffed by contractors. That doesn't mean that it needs to be a uh, that it needs to be a detriment to those people. And actually, in some cases, it's very much an advantage. And how do we we make sure that they're adequately re recognised and remunerated, uh, so that in times such as this, with inflationary pressures, um, they're not having to make personal sacrifices or business sacrifices in order to stay afloat. An interesting aspect of the budget was the government's focus on the game development sector and the leg up it's sort of giving to make sure that sector retains and keeps workers here in New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, companies like uh, like Pickpock based here have been very successful. I think you know, real sort of success stories coming out of uh, coming out of New Zealand. And I think it's it's. On the one hand, as you know, with, with with Henry ourselves being a being a tech business, you know, it's really encouraging to see the government taking an interest in the tech sector as, uh, you know, what we would see as the next generation of export businesses. Is how do we how do we look at uh, New Zealand as a as an exporter of fantastic technology and, and capitalise on some of the things that we've seen over the last sort of 10, 15 years? And so I think it's a you know from a from a, a bit of a selfish perspective, it's fantastic to see the gaming industry recognised as being uh, one of the next big exports from New Zealand. But New Zealand's essentially just playing catch up with what they do in Australia in terms of their tax rebates. They, they're very much uh, they're very much catching up, and they're very much coming to the party a, a little bit late. It's very fair. I think it's uh, it's one of those where, in order to stay competitive, we're we're having to we're having to move. Obviously, there's been a number of people who've been attracted away to Australia in, in recent years, and. You know, it's good to see New Zealand starting to to try and win back and starting to try and compete. And I'm, you know, hoping we're starting to see that in in, in the future net migration figures. And Chris, in terms of another focus of the budget was on wages and working conditions, especially in tourism and hospitality. That's certainly going to have a flow-on effect into retail sectors too. Oh, absolutely. You know, the wages are a key part of uh, retail. In fact, it's one of the biggest costs for most retailers. And in terms of recent announcements, listed companies like Hallenstein Glassons are holding up quite well despite economic challenges. That's right. Hallenstein Glassons are a very agile uh, organisation. They've been adaptive. Um, they've been very much focused on their online channels, uh, they've been following the the market quite closely, and um, and that's been their edge, just their agility over these last few years. And in terms of Edward, what you were hoping to see in the budget but wasn't there was the, did you have a kind of wish list? Uh well, one of the things that we were really happy was there was there was some more money in the budget for bus driver wages. Um, bus drivers will be the first group of employees that head towards a fair pay agreement this year. They're moving towards negotiation within the next couple of months. So we're glad to see there's some money on the table for the next couple of years of bus driver wages. We did want to see some some movement around welfare payments. We, we still think that the job seeker and supported living payments are, are too low to, to live on, particularly during this period of, um, of high inflation. Um, but Look, we're, we're moving towards an election, and I guess that's the time when we're going to see more of that given the inflationary pressures. 
uh, we, we were really glad to see the the relatively minor but tax changes come through around the trusts. I think that was, that was around trust income. That was really valuable. Um, but we're looking forward within the next couple of months to see more of a discussion around how we tax wealth in this country, particularly discussions around capital gains tax, I think will we'll be amongst the, the key discussions when we lead towards the election. Do you think there will be some tax tweaks heading into the election campaign? Look, I think it's highly unlikely that you'd see a uh, government put forward a report like the IRD report that came out around the, the wealth and income of the wealthiest families in, in this country and the amount of the proportion of tax that they pay on, on a regular basis compared to the proportion paid by regular working people without having some kind of a, of a debate and a response to that. Um, I think they were well aware that they couldn't do it now uh, in the lead up to the budget because of the nature of inflation of the inflationary position. But the 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 chips are in place for a good, a robust discussion um, and, and to let the people decide whether they want to see tax changes moving forward or whether, or whether they want to see uh, status quo. All right, Edward Miller, Chris Wilkinson and James Fuller, thanks for your time. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.